I'm Lisa Marganelli. I'm a senior fellow with the New America Foundation. I work on energy policy and I direct the New America Foundation's energy policy initiative at the national level. And I live in California. I live over in Oakland. And so I uh, also work in California. And obviously, California is a big laboratory for energy policy. So uh, this is the best place to be. Thank you so much for coming. I want to ask you how many, you've come out for green jobs, how many green jobs do you think California has? With a show of hands, two million, a million, five hundred thousand. How about three hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, hundred and fifty thousand? Aha, some of you read the invitation. Uh, <laughs> um, actually, there's recent analysis in a study by the group Next10 that shows that California has 159,000 green jobs. That is wonderful. We're actually way ahead of, of everybody else in the creation of green jobs. But obviously, we need a lot more. We have about, I think, 2 million unemployed people in California. We have a population of 40 million people, unemployment rate of 12%. We need lots and lots more of them. We've had a great success in this kind of green job creation. Uh, as Steve talked about, we've had a lot of, we've had years of success at very innovative regulation that kind of drives green industries, and we're already capturing an enormous amount of the venture capital around green industries. But I think it's time that we need to start expanding our thinking. We need to expand the timeline of our thinking about green jobs out into how do we create kind of a long green boom. California always thinks in terms of little booms, like a uh, you know, biotech boom here, or we're going to create a little green energy boom over in Emeryville, something that we'll, see if we'll, we'll start up and we'll see if it sticks. Um, what we need to do for green tech and clean tech is we need to be thinking like in a 40-year time horizon. How do we keep up? How do we sort of plan the way that China plans? When you go to China, people are talking about 40 years out. It's, very, it's totally normal there. Uh, the other thing that we need to do is we need to think about what a green job is and whether or not we have the right definition as we sort of go into the next phase. So how many people in this room think that they could tell me what a green job is? Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm, I, you know, the last six months, I've spent a lot of time thinking about green jobs, and, and I've come up with a couple of ideas about it. One of them is that um, it may not matter how many green jobs we create, if we can create another 200,000 green jobs, if the price of gasoline goes to $5 a gallon, what happens with people getting to all their other non-green jobs? And that is a really scary thought. I mean, we, in many ways, we need to think about pushing the boundaries of green jobs and making all California jobs greener. I think we also need to think about looking at some of our state problems and figuring out how to address them in a more sustainable way. We have, you know, of course we have earthquakes and we have global warming, the, the big ones, but we also have all sorts of other things on governance, budget, mortgages, traffic, sprawl, pollution, water, energy, aging, healthcare. We, we've got them all, and they're all kind of looming, and there are sort of sustainable takes on these things. That If we can broaden our sense of, what, of, of how to think about a sustainable economy or a long green boom, we may be able to, to work on some of those problems. There are, however, two big challenges for green tech or green jobs or the whole green concept right now. The first one is like, what is green? It, the concept has become so fashionable that it is becoming truly devalued. Uh, I went to CVS the other day. They tried to sell me a green bag for $1.99. That's fine. They then tried to sell me a green cardboard leaf for a dollar, which would entitle me to green savings. 
that had no bearing on anything green. I mean, it was a cardboard leaf. But then this is not CVS's fault. I mean, everyone is trying to sell this concept of green, and green also has this problem that it is a luxury good. It is Priuses, it is bamboo flooring, it is fancy stuff for fancy people. And it really, green needs to be, to get really gritty. It needs to be applied kind of all throughout the economy. It needs to be used to address income inequality. That's one of the things that we're going to discuss. We have this fantastic panel this afternoon. And the second thing is that green is right now becoming a target. Uh, Meg Whitman has said that the first thing that she'd do when she got into office is to put a one-year moratorium on AB 32. Poisoner has been, come out even more strongly against it. And, of course, there's also this ballot initiative uh, to basically freeze uh, implementation of AB 32 until the unemployment rate hits 5.5%, a.k.a. never. And um, <laughs> the, the scary thing is, as you all know, it's not too hard to get a ballot initiative passed here. Um, if you get people confused enough and, and upset enough. Um, so there's a tremendous amount at stake. And I think that if we think that green is a viable growth path for California, we really need to come up with powerful economic, regulatory, and political strategies to push it through into the next kind of level. So this is what I want to talk about on this panel. As I mentioned, we have a fantastic um, lineup. We have, starting from this side, we have Joseph Oldham, who's the sustainability manager for the city of Fresno. We have Kathy Gerwig, who's the sustainability... Environmental stewardship officer. Environmental stewardship officer for uh, Kaiser Permanente. Sorry. Uh, we have Sunil Paul, who's a venture capitalist and also founder of the Gigaton Throwdown. We have uh, Tracy Gross, who's a research and economist with Collaborative Economics. I'll give better introductions to people, and you can also find them on the web afterwards. And at the end, we have Michael Wilson, who's with UC Berkeley's uh, Green Chemistry Initiative. Now, to, to kick this off, I wanted to start by talking to Tracy Gross a little bit about uh, green jobs. She did the analysis that Next10 published on, uh, on green jobs in California, and she's done a tremendous amount of other research, uh, including for the, the Pew survey of all of the um, uh, states in the country, and, and has really been kind of a pioneer in thinking about what is a green job and how do we count them and how do we kind of create them. I want to first talk about green jobs as actually as, as a viable growth strategy. So one of the things that jumped out from the Next10 report that came out in uh, late last year was that over, the past, over 2007 and 2008, green jobs increased in this state by 5%, while regular jobs fell by 1%. So can we draw conclusions from this? Uh, yes, it's a growth industry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's a growth industry, there's money pouring into it, but what can we tell about the security of these kinds of jobs? Um, well, we hear so much about green jobs, and uh, we prefer to talk about the green economy. What we're witnessing is a transformation of the entire economy, um, bit by bit, through different means. Population is growing, um, economies are growing in the developing world, the um, demand for natural resources will continue to rise, and the demand for energy will continue to rise. Those things are not changing. We all need to start thinking about new ways of doing things. As uh, producers, we need to think about uh, more efficient ways of making the things we make as households, doing everything we do. So on the topic of green jobs, what is a green job? Um, I'd say you can, you can look at it uh, by industry, what industries are producing what, um, how industries are producing what they're doing, and uh, what you're doing in your specific occupation. Um, for the analysis, in order to operationalize an, a definition, <laughs> um, 
we have focused on the producers and providers that provide the means for the greening of the entire economy. So those are the businesses that provide uh, the products and services that enable us to leverage clean sources for energy, that uh, help us conserve energy and uh, natural resources, and um, products and services that help us repurpose uh, waste and reduce waste. So one of the things that comes up as you read the report is that um, there's some things about green jobs that are a little bit counterintuitive. When, when communities start talking about creating jobs, the traditional way that they talk about them is, well, we build an industrial park and we give them uh, tons and tons of tax breaks and uh, maybe we get some environmental waivers. And what kind of comes out of, of your look at green jobs is that, in fact, the counterintuitive thing is that in some cases regulations actually created the jobs. Um, energy efficiency is one of them that you just met, mentioned. Right. Um, smartly crafted policy can be a, a fabulous driver for creating new markets, and California is a wonderful example of that. And, and Next10 has also done the last several years the California Green Innovation Index that examines the different elements in, in that innovation process. So uh, building efficiency standards and appliance efficiency standards that came out of the, the 1970s the, the, with the energy crisis there have uh, created new markets for new products that, that um, uh, have improved efficiencies and they continue to be uh, improved. Um, so in other words, we're using the state as sort of an incubator. You create kind of a little wall of, of regulation and then you use the state to kind of incubate a market that needs energy efficiency or that needs catalytic converters or that sort of thing. Exactly. So uh, you create a new demand that needs to be filled and uh, innovators, you know, see that, that market opportunity. And uh, I would like to add that uh, Germany, I spent most of my adult life in Germany, and um, they've been out at the front of, of these things. And we have um, world-class, cutting-edge technology that's being created in, in California with um, uh, mature markets in, in Germany because of their building efficiency standards. So if we were to um, bring our national standards up to similar level levels as we have in California, we would open up vast new markets for products that originate from here. And I'm so talking about metering are, devices, sensors, and all kinds of things. So if there are lobbyists in the room, you should push for harder standards in Washington. <laughs> That'll help California's jobs. So um, it, the other thing that I, I think was really interesting that came out of your research is that, um, you know, we tend to think of, of um, Silicon Valley as this sort of center for innovation in California. It's one of the centers. Obviously, Hollywood is another one, um, but it's marketing a different product. What's happening with green tech is it's kind of, it's all over the state, and it's got, there's a tremendous amount of sort of regional upswelling, and that I thought was pretty exciting. Can you tell me a little bit about this, this idea of lots and lots of little green valleys? Um, well, there's a lot that can be done at the local level in, in, spurring, um, in spurring demand. What's, what's so important right now is spreading the application of these uh, new technologies as well as tried and tested te te technologies that help us achieve these environmental goals such as AB32 and improving, um, improving um, efficiencies and conservation. By, by setting standards, again, at the local level, by um, designing mandates and incentives and coming up with creative financing mechanisms like we saw in Berkeley and now that we're seeing with Skype in, in Sonoma County, um, much we'll can be done. We'll talk about Skype in a second. 
much can be done at the local level to uh, to spur the application of, of of these technologies. So the benefits are the the user um, reaps the benefits; their energy price or costs uh, go down. Um, the technologists. Um, uh, that, that helps spur their innovation process, working at the kinks of technologies and, and so on. And of course, you know, as as the demand increases, volumes increase, and on, on the economy-wide level, um, it it it's a matter of uh, competitive advantage uh, as well as 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 a business, for instance. So the dollars you don't have to spend on your energy bill, you can invest in new capital as a business, or or in hiring new people. Okay. Um, thank you very much. So um, one of the things that's happening then is throughout the state is there are different little centers of innovation. So there's in the Central Valley, there's more emphasis on biofuels. In Fresno, there's more emphasis on solar. Uh, there's probably something going on up north that I'm not aware of, but there are a lot of different sort of little centers of innovation all over the state, and they're each kind of focusing. I want to focus in on one place um, that's also taken kind of a citizens or, or a community approach to the concept of greening the economy. And that's Fresno. Now, Fresno is kind of California on steroids. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm just going to read you a few facts about Fresno. Since World War II, the city's population has grown eight times. Um, the land it covers has grown 12 times. I mean, that's just, that's like biological types of growth. It has, the residents use two times as much water per capita as Los Angeles. The chronic air pollution and agricultural pollen means that one in three Fresno County kids has asthma. And the recession and the mortgage crisis have really hit there. So we're very lucky to have Joseph Oldham, um, the sustainability manager of the city of Fresno and chairman of the Fresno Green Team. He's directly responsible for implementing Fresno's green energy efficiency and conservation strategy. And you should go onto the city of Fresno's uh, webpage and look for their green strategy. Google it. It's really a fantastic document and well worth reading in your spare time <laughs> on BART. And um, <laughs> previously he greened the fleet of Fresno. So... Um, Tell me, what's, what I think is really interesting about Fresno's approach to, to, to greening itself was that it didn't start out as something um, soft and, and, and squishy. It was actually kind of a hard-nosed <laughs> analysis about the, the weight of your infrastructure. So if you could tell us just what was going on with infrastructure and taxes. Sure. Well, Fresno for a long time has been plagued with high unemployment, low-median income, uh, chronic problems actually that date back to the end of World War II and actually sometime prior. Fresno's had various different identity crises, figuring out whether it's a ag town or whether it's a large industrial center. It is the largest city in the Central Valley. It is the fifth largest city in California. And Fresno has roughly half a million people living within its uh, jurisdictional boundaries. When we, did our, when we had to do our energy efficiency and conservation uh, strategy application to DOE for our... Um, Actually, could we back up and talk about what was going on with infrastructure? Because you realize that you oh, had these the yeah. baby boomers. Well, yeah, we have these baby boomers that uh, basically <laughs> I'm one of. Um, you know, it's this huge population of kids that were born out of after World War II. And there's been a lot of articles written about the boomer generation and its passage into retirement and the impacts of that passage on the subsequent generations. But when we began to do an analysis and looked at our costs, our general fund issues with maintenance of streets and police and fire services and all of that, you know, as, as Lisa mentioned, we've grown our land area 12 times while our population's only grown eight. 
you know, we've been the model for sprawl. And so when you have all of that sprawl, you have this huge infrastructure and you have to provide services over this huge area. And most of those services are general funded. So with the passage of the boomer generation into retirement, you've got these follow-up generations that are smaller. So that means your tax base is smaller. So you begin to look at this and go, hmm, gee, what have we done? <laughs> you know, Thomas Friedman says that the, our, the boomer generation is the grasshopper generation. We've eaten up all of the assets and everything that was provided for us by our parents and grandparents. And it's pretty much true. I mean, we've got this huge debt load that we've put on the country. We've got this, these huge issues, and so... I don't want to beat up on the boomers too much. No, well, I'll beat but, them up. Um, <laughs> I, I'm one of them. But anyway, so can... but, but we, we should talk about what... You basically realized that you couldn't pay. Yeah, we can't pay for it. I you mean, can't pay for this infrastructure, so yeah. you need to do some infill. You need right. to push back, and, right. and actually got the, the city chamber... Well, the, we, the we actually agreed. We got mothers. the city of Fresno administration as well as our council to agree that one of our strategies or one of the programs that we would do with the $4.6 million that we got from DOE was to completely redo our development codes and our standards for development so that we could get away from the sprawl methodology that we've had since the 1950s. Our uh, development codes have not had a significant renovation since 1960. So all they really do and our zoning ordinances, all they really do is promote sprawl. So if we want to do infill, if we want to do more compact development, we have to change all of that. And it's a massive undertaking, and it will take us at least three years, probably longer. So tell us a little bit about this energy thing, because the, the, the wild thing about Fresno is like you took this opportunity, everything was sort of the mortgage crisis was happening, managed to get this through the city council that we're gonna look and change the whole way that we've been thinking changed the way we've been developing since the 60s. And at the same time, you took this really radical approach to energy use among homes. Tell me right. a little bit about well, that. Well, we did analysis for our uh, conservation application to DOE, and we found using data from PG&E that in 2007, the city of Fresno as a community spent roughly $750 million on electricity and natural gas. And for a city of our size, that was appalling to us. We said, my goodness, you know, couldn't we do something better with this money than spending it on energy? And then we looked at uh, the CPUC goals for their strategic energy planning. And, you know, they have goals of 40% energy reduction from the built environment by 2020. We said, well, that may be a little bit too aggressive. How about if we ratchet it back to maybe 30%? What would that do? Well, that would be $225 million annually using $2,007 that would circulate in our economy if people weren't spending it on energy. Now they're spending it anyway. They're paying their power bills, otherwise the city would be dark. So they're, they're, they're spending it, but we want them to spend it in a different way. We want them to invest it back into themselves and into the community. So how much does that work out to per household? Oh. Is that like $1,500 per household? Yeah, about $1,500 so, a household. This yeah. is what I think is really interesting. I mean, here we have a green initiative that was meant to reduce the amount of greenhouse gases going into the air. It's also meant to reduce the amount of pollution that's going into the air um, because on hot days in Fresno, they turn on all the worst power plants. But what it ends up being is something that returns, it saves people money on their energy bills, but 
it also basically increases families' disposable income. I mean, this right. is a, a powerful approach to poverty. It's a powerful approach for the middle class. When you're in a city, you can't just raise people's wages by $1,500 after taxes, but you can get them to retrofit their homes. Well, right. That's what, we, that's <laughs> and, what we're trying and, to do. And this is this kind of interesting approach to, to income inequality, I think, in California that we need to look to green to be doing a lot more of. One of the things, um, when I talked, when I said green jobs to you, you laughed and said that needs a lot of green money. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, and you said, you know, the stimulus just isn't putting that many jobs on the ground. So what, what are you hoping for in terms of public, private? Well, the stimulus is putting, money, uh, putting jobs on the ground, but the scale of the jobs that are necessary, the scale of the task is so huge that the stimulus is just a drop in the bucket. We've been doing energy surveys in our communities since we started our program in July. We've done roughly 550 of them doing for free for homeowners. All they have to do is call us. We go out and we do a fairly detailed analysis of the home, give them a cost-benefit analysis. We're, we're seeing that most of the homes need about twenty-five dollars to $30,000 worth of improvements to fix either things that are wrong with the home, such as missing insulation, broken ducts, uh, inadequate HVAC systems, or to improve them by adding small uh, solar power arrays to reduce their peak load demand, and uh, as well as adding additional insulation, maybe improving their air sealing. So if you do that over the entire, you know, we, we got some data from uh, the real estate industry, and there's roughly about 50% of the mortgages in Fresno are upside down, but that means 50% of them aren't. And so that's about 79,000 <laughs> yeah, <laughs> 79, mortgages that are not upside down. And, you know, we're talking multiple billions of dollars worth of investment to get this community into the condition that needs to be. You know, these upgrades would get about a 30 to 40 percent improvement in the efficiency of these homes. But you need billions of dollars worth of investment to get there. That's why I say the stimulus is really just kind of a drop in the bucket. Right. It's really expensive. Now, one mm -hmm. of the programs we mentioned, Skype, it was just glancingly mentioned, is in Sonoma County. They've uh, developed kind of a loan program that's being extended across the state to Fresno. It's called the PACE program. And that is basically um, the county puts a lien on the home to lend the homeowner the money to get all the upgrades done. And then that the mortgage essentially on those upgrades stays with the home and becomes part of the home's tax bill. So it gets paid off over 20 or 30 years. Um, so, uh, and Sonoma managed to add 500 construction jobs to the county during uh, last summer, which is pretty stunning actually to do that. And that is actually really interesting use of sort of public-private synergy to make that happen. Right. So, um, I think if you think too much about these green, this green job business, you get to really thinking about how do we make all jobs greener. And that pretty much in California leads you ultimately to Kaiser Permanente, which has um, 8.5 million patients or members. It has 167,000 employees, which is enormous. Um, and for the past 15 years, they've been working to make their whole operation greener, long before it was fashionable or cool. Um, and so we're lucky to have Kathy Gerwig here who's the environmental stewardship officer for Kaiser. She's responsible for integrating sustainability into all of Kaiser Permanente's work for the purpose of reducing health risks associated with environmental factors. She also directs Kaiser Permanente's national workforce safety program. So, Kathy, way back in 1996, Kaiser started down this path towards greener jobs. And, and how, did that, how did that happen? You mentioned that it was a value in the beginning. 
It, right, exactly. Um, I think, you know, we look at uh, environmental stewardship and the greening of healthcare as preventive medicine. So if you think about, you know, why do we want fewer toxic chemicals in the products that we buy, it's because we don't want the diseases that are associated with people's exposure. People come to us when they have cancer, Parkinson's, fertility problems, and all of those uh, diseases are exacerbated or in some cases caused by exposure to toxic chemicals. So uh, in a variety of ways, we look at um, the environment as an extension of our value of preventive health. So tell me like, how deep the program has evolved to be over the past 15 years. Uh, well, when we, we, we formally started our national program in 1997, and that was in part because the US EPA came out with information that was really stunning to us, and that was that the number one cause of dioxin pollution, and dioxin is a very powerful carcinogen, the number one source of dioxin pollution were medical waste incinerators. And that was because of all the PVC that got incinerated through healthcare. So when that information came to us and to other healthcare organizations, you know, it was a huge wake-up call. So we first started uh, by looking at waste. How do we segregate it? Um, how do we process it so that it's safe for the environment and, you know, we're still getting the job done? Uh, but we also said, well, we should get rid of the culprit, which is PVC. Um, so for many years, we've had a program to try to phase out the amount of PVC. And when you think about PVC in healthcare, it's in IV bags, it's in tubing, it's in carpet, it's in wall covering. I mean, it's ubiquitous. Um, so uh, today, we, we've evolved uh, over time, but today we focus on four key areas in our program. We focus on safe chemicals, and that means um, looking for products that don't contain chemicals that are of high concern. Second area is climate action. So we do a lot around energy efficiency, renewables, uh, other climate work. Third area is sustainable food. So we can all make jokes about healthcare and food, but, <laughs> but one of the things we know is that uh, there are a lot of food miles. We serve a lot of meals and there are a lot of food miles. And so to the extent we can source locally grown and sustainable food, that's one of our key initiatives. And then the fourth area is, continues to be waste reduction. It's the, you know, kind of the bread and butter of uh, being an environmental steward is managing our waste, reducing our waste, uh, processing it in a way that is as environmentally benign as possible. So this started as a values-driven thing, but what was kind of interesting and counterintuitive, again, uh, is that it ended up saving money, right? It does save money. So that whole myth about green costing more, uh, we, can, we can blow that myth away based on our experience of more than a decade. Um, it actually started with waste. So back to the you know, really sexy topic of waste. Um, when we were looking at getting rid of you know, as much PVC, processing it differently, it turns out that you know, when we looked at, uh, some of you have been in a healthcare setting, you know that uh, there's regular waste and then there's waste that goes into the red bags and the red bag waste is biohazardous and it has to get processed and it's kind of expensive to process that waste. Um, and so when we did waste audits, what did we find in there? Well, we found, you know, paper gowns, we found pizza boxes, we found a lot of stuff that had, <laughs> you know, no reason to be in the biohazardous waste stream. So by segregating our waste much more effectively, right away we saved money. So first effort out of the box, we saved money. Second effort, 
was uh, to try to rid ourselves of mercury. And today we are virtually mercury-free. The um, main source of mercury that still exists in our facilities is in fluorescent lighting. But most of the other mercury uh, has been eliminated. And that was another lesson where we were looking at blood pressure devices. If you remember the old mercury-containing blood pressure devices, uh, when we went to an alternative, the alternative was actually a little bit more on a unit-by-unit unit cost, cost a little bit more. So everybody thought, uh-oh, now this is going to cost us more. Well, then we looked at the cost of ownership, which if you have a mercury device, what do you need to do? Well, you have to have a spill kit in case it breaks. You have to train everybody in the unit on how to use a spill kit in case it breaks. On the occasions where they do break, and we had breakages on a pretty regular basis, you have to shut down that room. You lose the ability to put patients in an exam room, and you have to pay a bunch of money to a hazardous waste cleanup. Uh, company to come in and get rid of it. So when you looked at the cost of ownership, it was way cheaper to move away from the mercury device than it was to keep what we had. But we had to tell that story, you know, make a business case. So by the time we, you know, went down the waste track and went down the mercury track, got a lot of success out of there, um, created a momentum that said, okay, this is really good for business, it's smart business, and what are the other opportunities out there? And we continue to find them every day. And it's something like $20 million a year you save. Well, that was an example just this last year. So we had 14 products that we targeted for uh, our environmentally preferable purchasing, uh, ranging from things like putting, um, imagine an OR, an, an operating room, and the lighting in there, lots of lighting, very energy intensive lighting. We are changing that out to LED lighting. Uh, really bright and really energy efficient. <laughs> so uh, that, uh, things like reusable surgical gowns, you know, list of 14, that, those 14 products um, are going to save us $20 million a year, so this, year after year. And, and this is just this really interesting strategy that, that Kaiser has of a risk-based auditing system, of going around and looking for these big risks in, within this giant system. I mean, 167,000 people is a lot. Yeah, the, the system, uh, you know, you can imagine when you're as huge as we are and dealing with the complexities of healthcare, and then you're trying to look at your environmental opportunities within that, there are a million opportunities. So how do you kind of sort through that and figure out what should we be focused on? So we, um, for each of the four areas I mentioned, chemicals, climate, food, and waste, for each one of those, we approached it from a, a, a risk standpoint. We um, took all the opportunities and we filtered them through uh, criteria, including, you know, so if we, if we don't deal with this issue, what will be the severity of it from an environmental standpoint? You know, is there um, a regulatory issue that we're going to have to deal with? Are there, you know, reputational or public relations issues that are out there? So when you, when you take all that into account, it's not just exposure, it's not just uh, the environmental issues, but it's the whole... Uh, the whole gamut, then we began to see, oh, you know, when you look at that, what are the products that are used most by staff and patients? Those, you know, come to the top right away. What are the building materials? Well, it's the things around you. It's the carpet and the flooring. You know, it's the ceiling tiles. It's the paint on the walls. So you start to see that, you know, we, we have... Um, it's big, but it's manageable, uh, our work plan for this year, which is the result of taking our four priority areas and filtering through all these opportunities so that we can come up with something that, you know, is, is manageable. I think this is a really interesting strategy. I mean, when you take the, 
the sort of the venture capital model, you have individuals looking for opportunities and markets that they can use. And what this is, is this is from the other side. It's taking a risk-based, and it's, it's maybe something that's more appropriate to communities or states or policymakers, is look at the risks and find out where you would want to change things out and then create the market that way. And uh, that I find uh, very inspiring in terms of thinking about green jobs and, and green, uh, a green boom in sort of a more holistic way. Um, where were you yesterday? I was in Washington, D.C. Why does Kaiser need to go to Washington, D.C.? <laughs> <laughs> there, was there was a Senate hearing about federal chemical policy reform. And um, I testified for Kaiser. There were six of us on the panel. There was DuPont and Dow. We had, you know, the petrochemical <laughs> industry representative and uh, American Chemistry Council folks and Kaiser Permanente. And uh, the reason we were there is because we're trying to... Um, communicate to policymakers that we're downstream users. I mean, we think about it, we're, we're just a big consumer. And when you're a downstream user, the burden is on us to figure out what's safe. There are no remedies for that. We have to sort through the products that we buy and try to figure out for ourselves, are they safe? Is the alternative safer? And um, it's a tremendous burden. We actually spend a lot of time and a lot of resources that we could be spending delivering healthcare, but we're spending them on things like supplier disclosure processes to try to make sure that from this preventive health standpoint, we're not contributing to more health problems associated with, uh, with toxic chemicals. So Great. we were able to testify Thanks. for the Senate. And, and I want to switch the, the conversation a little bit to the policy. Um, there's some cautionary tales of when you if, you, if you throw yourself into the concept of green jobs, you need to wonder, you need to be careful about what you're going to end up with. We need to think and be sure that we're actually ending up with something that's green. Um, obviously, we need to be sure we're ending up with a job. And really think about what are the policies. Do we have kind of an overarching strategy to get to the kind of things that we need? And, and this is one of the issues here is that if we don't, if you can't, if Kaiser Permanente can't tell what's in their chemicals, I mean, where are the rest of us? And so what I wanted to do was introduce... Um, Dr. Michael Wilson, who is uh, the head of UC Berkeley's uh, Center for Green Chemistry. He's been working for much of his career on a comprehensive approach to green chemistry um, that has been sponsored uh, and, and kind of creating the, the working uh, ideas for what would be a green chemistry industry or an approach in California. Um, he's been asked to do this by the California legislature, also by the California EPA. I think he and his colleague, Dr. Megan Schwartzman, who's here in the audience somewhere, are on their way to talk to the Washington State EPA today, so we're really lucky to be able to waylay them. Um, Mike, I wondered if you could tell me um, this, you told me this amazing cautionary tale about what happens when you don't have a strategy about what's green and what's not green. Tell me about the people who showed up at the, at the ER with losing the sensation in their fingers. Um, sure, I think, um, and I guess that it sort of um, is the backstory to you know, what's going on with this Berkeley Center for Green Chemistry and the linkage to the whole clean energy sector that we're, we're looking at the chemical side and trying to make the case, I think as Kathy Gerwig has pointed out, that, that chemicals and materials are one of the big cornerstones of sustainability and also this gritty side of it that how, how do you, if you are producing new jobs, are those actually safe jobs for workers? Mm -hmm. We look at toxic substances used in photovoltaics. So tell us about, just tell yeah. us about this great story which so just fills bringing, a person with fear. Exactly. So <laughs> getting to the point, <laughs> uh, I mean, bringing that right down to a personal level, uh, we um, uh, 
came in touch with, and through UC San Francisco's uh, medical school, an, an individual, 24-year-old uh, auto mechanic, who showed up with really advanced neurological disease, uh, where he'd lost sensory and motor function in his limbs, otherwise a healthy individual. He'd been through a number of different neurologists. They couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. He had been using, it turns out, a, uh, a spray bottles, somewhat like this size, that uh, contained uh, a, a, chem a chemical called hexane that um, uh, when you inhale hexane and you're using it to clean brakes and automotive and engines and so forth, it has this very unique uh, property of denaturing the proteins of the long nerves in the arms and legs. And you end up with this uh, very characteristic disease pattern. And uh, we've known this for 40 years, that hexane does this. And here was a mechanic in California, this advanced industrialized economy, <laughs> using hexane under totally uncontrolled conditions, going through eight or 10 cans a day of this. And uh, we found that that was the case across thousands of uh, shops across California. And Yet we'd known the stuff was bad since 1926 or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. About, about then, in the shoe manufacturing industry. Right. Yeah, but so what, why, why were they using it? So uh, in looking at, what, yeah, exactly, that was the question. Why, why did this happen? And it turned out that uh, California was the first state and remains the only state to prohibit the use of chlorinated solvents in the automotive repair industry. And that was because the chlorine was getting into the used oil supply and uh, as uh, we talked about dioxins earlier, that used oil was being used in ships and trains. And when you combust chlorine in used oil, it produces dioxins. So we had dioxins spewing out of the ships in the Oakland estuary, this extremely potent carcinogen. And Cal EPA, quite brilliantly, traced the source of the contamination back to automotive repair industry practices and prohibited the use of chlorine. It was a great thing. But we did that, we took this substance sort of out of the web of commerce and didn't have a sense of what was going to come next. And, and this is this sort of call for systems thinking. The industry stepped in and said, we need a non-chlorinated chemical. And so they introduced hexane. And hexane is a toxic substance, particularly for workers. Okay. So hexane is really bad stuff. Yeah. And so uh, through various activities, we've taken hexane out. Where did, tell me the next cautionary tale about green jobs, which is wh what happened when you went to talk to some people who were doing um, retrofits? Well, of course, yeah, so, so uh, <laughs> we ended up issuing a health hazard advisory. The industry got rid of hexane and substituted it with bromopropane, which causes mm -hmm. sterility. Uh, <laughs> then, <laughs> yeah, so that was a good move. And so it's then, a joke when you're sitting three here, months not ago, when you're in the <laughs> yeah, so three yeah. months ago in Oregon, I was giving this, telling this story to a room full of uh, building trades uh, workers from the Center to Protect Workers' Rights. And in the back of the room, the, these workers who, do, who are working on building retrofits, putting on um, insulation on ducting in these large commercial buildings to improve the energy efficiency, uh, are, they were Googling their, the material safety data sheets for the product that they use in adhering insulation to ducting and to water systems. And it was the exact formulation of the brake cleaning products that California was, was, had, pro, had basically engendered in the use of the automotive repair industry, and, except that it had a little glue in it. And they were, they're using these in confined spaces, in crawl spaces and plenums and so forth. 
Uh, you know, it's, and so, so here we are putting money into retrofitting buildings, a smart thing to do, but we're introducing a, an ex extraordinarily toxic environment for the workers who are doing it. Yeah, this, this really speaks to the need to, for a really strategic approach to the whole issue. Um, and it also speaks to, um, to another problem that comes up, which is that we might not be getting the kind of innovation that we want in chemistry um, simply because people don't have the information. So mm -hmm. tell me, like, if I come up with a really fantastic adhesive to stick insulation to the walls, right. and it, has, it harms absolutely no one, and it's made from, you know, uh, jellyfish, for, right. for example. It, it, t it takes away bad jellyfish. Um, so what, what happens then if I try to market it? Can I market it? Well, the extraordinary thing is that uh, in the United States, there's no requirement that uh, the manufacturers of chemical products uh, generate and disclose information about the toxicity of those products to anyone, to mm -hmm. the government, to, uh, to the public, to downstream businesses, as Kathy Gerwick has articulated. And so, as a consequence, we have this m enormous market, 74 billion pounds of chemicals entering commercial use every day, every day in the U.S., that uh, the downstream buyers of those chemicals have very poor, and in some cases, no information on the toxic properties. So here you are with your jellyfish formulation, and you want to introduce it, and you, you, you're trying to make the claim that it's safer in the market. You can't make that claim legitimately, because you're competing against potentially 300 or 400 other chemicals on the market uh, whose toxic properties are essentially unknown. And so, so you, you me have and a, my jellyfish are completely out barrier. of luck. Yeah, yeah. Good and luck. so this, this is barrier. this interesting thing is that we because we don't have these standards in place, we actually are kind of stifling innovation. Exactly. And and that is um, trouble. I think the other thing um, I, I'm just going to tell this very very quickly. Yeah. Sometimes regulating these end products can actually lead to bringing jobs back to the U.S. And one of the things that happened was that there was this um, we got. Uh, plywood made with formaldehyde from China, and it was coming over here. It was part of the Katrina trailer disaster. Um, when uh, California started to regulate formaldehyde in the plywood, uh, a local or U.S.-based company, Columbia Forest Products, with 2,000 employees, started selling this. Um, you know, basically the jellyfish of plywood, but it was basically uh, it was ma plywood made uh, with a soy glue that was based on uh, how mussels adhere to rocks, and. Um, and, and it's become a big industry, and now we have these jobs out in these rural areas uh, making plywood that we didn't have before because it was made in China. Um, I want to just really quickly move on. Uh, we have to end and go to questions from you. Um, it to, our last person is Sunil Paul. Um, he's a venture capitalist. Um, he is the founder of uh, Spring Ventures LLC, and he's also um, kind of... Um, I guess a venture idealist, maybe. I don't know if that's kind of a weird phrase. But he founded, uh, one of the things he founded was the Gigaton Throwdown, which is a project to educate and inspire entrepreneurs, investors, and policymakers to think big about climate solutions. Um, he's also a co-founder and co-chair of the Clean Economy Network, um, which is the largest clean tech organization in the U.S. So, Sunil, when I talked to you, uh, when we started talking about this panel, you laughed when I talked about green jobs, and you said, well, venture to capitalists don't care about jobs. <laughs> Tell me what you care about. <laughs> well, I, I should clarify that I was speaking about most venture capitalists. <laughs> um, and, I, and I will also say that, that, yeah, it's true. I mean, investors generally don't care about a green job or the number of jobs that they create. 
when you know Larry and Sergey were sitting around talking about how they might create Google, they weren't sitting there. Well, gee, we'll create ten thousand jobs or whatever in in California. That was not part of their business plan. But the jobs come as a result of the innovation, as a result of of of, of that kind of investment. So, and, and by the way, I think a lot of that that's driven entirely because they're the investors in venture funds don't care about jobs. Um, and by the way, I, you know, I think as, as individuals, most people don't care about green jobs either. I mean, they, they might care about a job that generates some green, but they don't really care whether it's a green job or Unless some other theirs. kind of job. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, people want to make a living and feed their kids and be able to send them to college. I mean, that, that's, that's fundamentally what, what the kinds of jobs that we, that we want to create. And we want to create good jobs. Now, as a citizen and as a, as a, as a sort of someone who cares about the, 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 the future generations, I, I want to create good paying jobs. And that is something that we should care about, sort of how we build our society. So what attracts you to a place like California? Well, California is fantastic as a place for innovation. And uh, the most fundamental thing that we have here is a fantastic uh, education system. I, I got to tell you, one of the things that we could do to, to screw up the chance for green jobs is, is uh, what we're starting to do, which is, and have been doing, is gutting um, the fabulous system of education that we have here in California, uh, especially the public uh, education system. That, that kind of uh, education system is like the soil that all these companies grow in. Um, so the, number one is innovation and the, the fact that we have this great education system. The fact that we have these regulatory markets and we are leaders in environmental uh, uh, regulation is fundamental to why uh, clean tech has, has uh, sprouted here in, in California. And uh, having that kind of long-term stable set of regulations where you know that, uh, that uh, if, you've, if you're, you know, regardless of what you think of the hype of Bloom uh, Energy, that they are selling most of their products here. Um, you know, solar uh, companies are many times selling their product directly into California. Um, it's incredibly great place to be. Uh, Steve, I thought, did a great job of explaining a lot of those great reasons for why California's a great place to be if you're an innovator or you're an investor in innovators. And I think that's one of these counterintuitive <coughs> things that we've hit on quite a few times here is that the regulations actually draw people to invest in California. It's not just that they create jobs here, it's that they also draw people to invest here because it's a chance to get in on the ground floor of the regulations before they spread to the rest of the country or the rest <laughs> of the world. Um, this, is, you know, this is the play space to lobby for regulations as well as to work within these captive markets. I have to say that that regulation has to be long-term and stable. Mm -hmm. And it's actually worse. So California is also a great example of how to screw up regulation and subsidies. <laughs> the, the bankruptcy of virtually every wind turbine company on earth was a result of poor regulation in California. Um, we had very rich subsidies in the late 80s. Uh, there was a court case that basically reversed those subsidies. Uh, turbine production around the world had, had ramped up to, uh, to satisfy the California market. And when those subsidies went away overnight, it bankrupts all but one uh, uh, turbine company in the U.S. and the leading turbine company, uh, Vestas, which was established in 1880-something uh, as, as a farm equipment company, uh, had been around for generations, uh, disappeared overnight, and you know, ended up being bought out by the management team. And 
a lot of history of bankruptcies in this world, um, which is a cautionary tale for, for people on this side of the investment uh, world. Okay. Well, thank you very much to the panel. Um, I want to open the floor to questions. I think we could actually keep on talking for about another 40 minutes productively, but we actually do have to break for, um, for questions. So hit them with some good ones. Thank you. It's Roger Weinman. And I had a quick question regarding the new uh, technology called Bloombox and what do you think the percussions of that will be in the near future? Because I understand that's up and running. Thank you. I didn't, so hear, that, I didn't hear that question. The question was I about the, the Bloombox. What, what do I think about Bloombox? I am in awe of the ability to have that much hype around the launch of what is not that revolutionary technology. <laughs> um, now, that said, so my hat's off to them. I mean, look, I, I, amazing. I mean, you don't, it's just extraordinary to be able to do what they did um, in the department of PR. Um, in the department of, is it a truly revolutionary technology? No. But it is an important technology, and it's one that uh, others like UTC offer for actually lower than the price that Bloombox offers. Um, it is a technology that, that I think is going to be an important role. And I think what the important thing that Bloombox did is uh, we have been throwing the idea of fuel cells out the window. And... Uh, I think because it's been poo-pooed because of hydrogen and all that, but in fact, that technology base has a huge amount of invention, uh, invention and innovation potential out of it that can help us solve a lot of these energy problems. There needs to be more attention paid to fuel cells, uh, and that's an important outcome, and Bloombox will be one of those. Yeah, I'd like to see the breakdown on that 8 to 10 cents per kilowatt hour that they claim from companies that have bought the box, and somehow they've come up with a per hour as if they're being charged by a supplier. Anyway, I just wanted to prompt, so what is the gigaton throwdown? I love the name so much, speaking of PR. <laughs> My name is Scott Landsman. Sorry. Uh, thanks, Scott, for the, the easy plug. And I don't know Scott, by the way. <laughs> uh, gigaton throwdown is um, it's an effort that was started because uh, about three years ago, uh, a friend of mine said uh, to me, you know, you guys, you clean tech guys, you could all make a bunch of money and not make a bit of difference. And I thought about that and realized almost immediately he was right, that um, uh, frankly, once you're in the investment side of the world, uh, or even when you're in the entrepreneurial seat, it's easy to forget why you might have gotten there in the first place. I mean, I entered this space because I thought there's an opportunity to, to leverage the power of markets to generate a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of good in the world. I realized that by just chasing return, you might lose that. 30x improvement in solar means zero as far as the climate goes. It doesn't make that big an impact on employment, economic development. So I asked the question, well, what does it take? What does it take to make a big difference using these technologies? And we uh, set off in a big project, um, involved a bunch of academics, a bunch of people from industry, uh, issued a report, looked at nine different ways that you could achieve one billion tons per year of carbon dioxide reduction, um, a gigaton per year, and uh, issued a report. That report's ended up being used by Department of Energy now, um, and also uh, Richard Branson's uh, Carbon War Room is using it as a framework. And we're about to launch, we have launched phase two. Um, there'll be more about that, and I'm happy to you know, you come up to me afterwards and talk more about it if you like. You should you can download another? that at gigaton.org. Um, you can also- Gigaton Throwdown. Uh, yeah. Gigaton Throwdown, sorry, <laughs> .org. Um, and actually, uh, We'll be putting up the websites for everybody on the linked site that is here. Um, another thing you might want to go to is the Center of Berkeley Center for Green Chemistry's website. Um, 
buried in the appendixes of some of the reports are some stunning facts, like that Californians use eight tons of hair mousse a day. <laughs> tons. I don't know. It was done in the late 90s, that number came from. Hi, my name is Lisa Hoyos with the California Apollo Alliance. And my question is for the, the person from Fresno. Um, in relation to the prospective threat of the AB32, anti-AB32 Valero initiative, um, where we often lose initiatives that are progressive or where we often are is, is typically in the electoral work I've done in the Central Valley. And I'm just wondering, it's kind of the red part of our blue state. And I'm wondering what insights you have vis-a-vis -vis how we raise consciousness around the kind of work you're leading and driving in Fresno about the value of the green economy as a job creator so we can push back against this initiative. You know, there's an interesting cartoon that came out the other day, and I don't remember where it was, but basically it was said that, well, what if this whole climate change thing is a hoax and we make a better world for nothing? And, <laughs> you know, um, I, think that, I think that really kind of says it all. Um, our focus is multifaceted. We're not just looking at the carbon emission reductions, although those are very important to us. We're also looking at the financial issues facing cities and communities all around the, the state, the world. How are we going to pay for all of this infrastructure as major portions of our tax base retire and are no longer paying taxes? So, you know, that's, that's a huge issue that resonates in the fairly conservative San Joaquin Valley. Um, there's also other issues in terms of water. You know, the city uses twice as much water per capita as Los Angeles, 300 gallons per person per day. Uh, we basically live in a desert. We get an annual rainfall of 11 inches. If it wasn't for the Sierra Nevada mountains and the snowpack, uh, basically we would not have the landscape that we have. We wouldn't have the agriculture. So there's a variety of different things that we're looking at, and that's, that's the way to keep the focus, I think, is you have to address all of the issues. Uh, we've been doing a massive uh, outreach campaign. We started doing uh, mailers to, uh, to all, in all of our utility inserts. I've done television sh uh, spots. I've done radio spots. Uh, we're, just tr we're really trying to get the word out. We go to home shows. We're, you know, we're sending mailers out in our, our local newspaper, getting people's attention, of course, coming to events such as this, getting people's attention about what energy efficiency really means. We found that l in large part, the public views their energy bills as a fixed and hardened cost in their budget. And so they, people buy a home, it's a big house or it's a small house. They get a power bill. They don't look at it. They don't analyze it. They don't see how, many, how high up on the tier structure they are. They just say, okay, I've got a $300 bill this month. I write a check and, okay, kids, you can't get this. You can't get that because I just wrote a $300 check. The worst one was $1,729 for one month for one homeowner. And she had no idea that her ductwork in her attic was disconnected from her HVAC system, and that's why her bill was so high. So <laughs> you begin to see that there's just this huge misunderstanding in the public's mind about the homes they live in, energy efficiency, and all of that. And it's going to take a massive outreach to get the word across. And it, but it is on multiple levels, and you have different... Um, messages with different audiences. You know, if I'm speaking to an environmental group, I'll, talk, I'll take a little bit different tack than if I'm 
speaking to uh, you know a taxpayer revolt group, you know. <laughs> so, uh, Blair Bobier with the New America Foundation. A number of years ago, there was an effort to shut down the one remaining nuclear power plant in Oregon. And the proponents of shutting down the plant claim that if everyone in the state, which is only about three million people at the time, insulated their water heaters, they would save enough energy to eliminate the need for the electricity generated by the power plant. So one of the questions I have is what type of ways are there to use low-tech, old-fashioned technology decentralized to create a lot of jobs. A lot of what I'm hearing is going into new industries and re requires investment and venture capital and regulations. What can we do with what we have that will benefit the most people? Can I take a stab at that? Because I think what we're doing is fairly low tech. We're going out and analyzing people's homes and finding things that are broken or non-existent. We go into homes and we find that you know, a renovation was done and they replaced major portions of the uh, ceiling in the home and oh, by the way, they didn't put back any insulation. Or uh, they did a, re a redo of the ductwork or put a new HVAC system in and oh, by the way, they left a two inch gap on the plenum when they attached the ductwork to the HVAC system and so you're, you know, you've got this two inch gap across a three foot section that's just blowing hot air or cold air into the attic. Those are very low-tech things that we can do. There's a tremendous need out there. Again, I come back to the fact that people are paying money to the, to the power companies for energy. But in many, many cases, it's being wasted. And it's just the same as, you know, I, I drive a Prius, okay? I'm one of those people that drive a Prius. I drive a Prius because it gets 50 miles per gallon and I can afford other things instead of putting money in the gas tank. Now, I have a lot of friends that drive cars that get 10 to 12 miles per gallon. And they, they're one person in the car. I'm getting 50, they're getting 10. It's, but we're still doing the same thing. We're going the same distance. We're transporting ourselves to this location. There were some statistics that came out the other day that, uh, well, not the other day, it's been a while back, actually, that the estimate would be that if everybody on the planet lived like Americans live today, it would take three planet Earths worth of resources to do that. There's something wrong with that picture. You know, 3% of the world's population using 25% of the world's resources. We have to get more efficient at what we do. We don't have to have a lower standard of living. We could just do it more efficiently. Alternately, we could do away with gasoline-powered leaf blowers. Um, True. Yes. I just wanted, from a larger perspective, uh, you know, a big organization. We have about 65 million square feet of um, real estate that we deal with, and you know, there just are so many energy efficiency activities that are, you know are low tech. I mean, window film, mm -hmm. you know, for example, saves a ton of money, um, and you know we can go on and on. So it's fixing things. Also in buildings, you know, they call it commissioning. And one of the things we found um, thinking about green jobs is building engineers who um, are savvy enough to work with new building systems. Uh, you know, a lot of building engineers are from the old school and, you know, get the wrench and the whatever and try to go in and fix it. And today, you know, building systems are so complex. So anybody who has an engineering bent and, um, can make those systems run more efficiently is, you know, I think that's an ideal profession for the future to get to some of the energy efficiency you're talking about. Um, 
Hi, my name is Barbara. This is um, a two-part question. Um, and, and the gentleman from Fresno. Um, I'm originally from New York, and New York's been deemed, in fact, the most green city, believe it or not. And the reason is because as a huge, huge city, um, people use the mass transit and try, you know, sprawl wasn't an issue then. Right. You know? um, my question is, in terms of renovating the old stock houses across the country, particularly in the cities, um, I mean, do you see the future in terms of the government in general, I don't mean just California, but in general, helping to really make a difference to help people afford to renovate their old housing stock to stop sprawl, you know, to re-encourage people to stay in the cities and not move out into the country, not develop the green right. space, and do a number of the things, you know, that we need to do to preserve what little green space is left in a lot of the states. Um, the second part of this, which is not related, is to the gentleman from Berkeley. Um, I didn't quite understand when you said that the products aren't being tested enough for toxicity. I was wondering if you could comment on that afterwards, because that kind of shocks me. You know? mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Well, let me just take a stab at the sprawl issue. The issue with sprawl is that land was cheap in, in the Central Valley, and it was easier to build out than it was to try to build up. That's all changing. Now we know that this expansive infrastructure costs a lot to maintain. It takes a lot of additional personnel in terms of police and fire protection to address the issues when you've got people sprawled out across the country at eight units per acre versus 40 units per acre. That's one thing. I think the efforts that uh, cities such as ourselves and other communities around the state are doing now with the property assessed clean energy financing and loans that are done through uh, bonds that are then uh, paid back through the property taxes is a major vehicle to help homeowners in existing homes do major, fairly major renovations. The program that we're going to be participating in has a $75,000 cap or a maximum of 10% of the value of the home for residential. It also is applicable for commercial uh, home, uh, property owners as well. There's no dollar cap, and it's only reliant on 10% of the value of the property. Uh, one of the examples from Sonoma, in talking to them, <coughs> one of the biggest loans that they did this past year was a $6.6 .6 million loan on a commercial property in Sonoma that included energy efficiency and solar and a variety of other things. There's tremendous opportunities to make our businesses, our, com our commercial properties far more efficient. In doing so, we give competitive advantage to those facilities. And then that helps us in terms of job development, profitability, and all of that. So yes, I think there's tremendous opportunities out there. One of our things that we're doing is to try to pre-entitle major corridors within our city for smart growth development. We're not going, we, we know that you'll never complete, or not at least in the next 50 years, you're not gonna devastate the entire city and rebuild it in a, in a new fashion. So there'll be corridors, and we're making those corridors along the logical routes for high density transit, bus rapid transit or light rail. So by setting those corridors up, these are areas that, that need some kind of rehabilitation or renovation or redevelopment anyway, shopping centers that are completely vacant and that sort of thing, parking lots that aren't filled with anything other than just weeds. 
by redoing those corridors and making those opportunities for new investment and for high density, high quality uh, living environments, we think that we're going to provide uh, opportunities for that type of uh, situation to change. Thanks. Do you want to take that? Yeah. Sure. So I, I mentioned the, uh, the number 74 billion pounds of, in, of chemicals entering commercial use in the United States every day. And those are chemicals that don't include pharmaceuticals, uh, food additives, uh, and pesticides, which have some testing uh, and some, actually some amount of oversight. Uh, but the 74 billion pounds are essentially all of the uh, industrial chemicals that go into consumer products, uh, commercial products, and industrial processes. And they're subject to the Toxic Substances Control Act that we passed in 1976 and in which one of the things we gave away in the last weeks of negotiating that statute, we being the U.S. Congress, was a requirement of the chemical producers to generate and disclose information on the hazardous properties of uh, chemicals that they had on the market, 62,000 at the time, or any chemical introduced since 1976, uh, 20,000 since then. So those chemical products on the shelves are... Um, there is no oversight um, with respect to the environmental and human health um, hazards that, that, they're, that, that they're contained. That, right, so you know. it's this massive market failure. Right. It's really... It's a surprising thing, actually, and we're way, way behind in terms of... It's one of the big environmental and public health issues that uh, is finally getting some traction, but way behind, uh, actually, the energy sector in becoming a public issue. Right, and it's yeah. also Europe and other places are ahead on the regulation or the awareness of this. Well, that's right. In fact, the formaldehyde-based wood products that you described built in the or in these FEMA trailers would be prohibited for sale in the European Union, in Japan, and actually now in China, where they were being Which manufactured and <laughs> sold in, here. Yeah, and sold into the United <laughs> States, where there's virtually no oversight uh, on these products. So we become a dumping ground of sorts for these things. Yeah. Scary stuff. Thank you so much for taking the time for my question. Uh, you pretty much answered the one question I was going to ask you anyway, <laughs> which is awesome. I, I appreciate that. But for, for you over and uh, from Kaiser Permanente, uh, I have a big question. I mean, everyone's talking about energy. Everyone's talking about, you know, cleaning up the air. But my main concern has always been waste management. It's always been about how we manage our waste and where we're doing with our waste. And primarily... One of the biggest concerns, which, we, you know, which we're now finding out about cancer cells that are actually breaking out in like certain little locations around in the United States, and some of those things are caused by pharmaceuticals that are being improperly disposed of. So if you would, could you speak to how people should be properly disposing of that so I could be able to get, to get that to my readers, and then that way we can be able to try and get the message across to people so that way we can stop dumping these carcinogens into the water and causing poisons as such like that. Because as you'd mentioned before, sir, from uh, Fresno, the fact that we have so many uh, baby boomers right now, so many people are on medications and so many people don't know how to dispose of those medicines. Uh, you would think I would have an easy, clear <laughs> message for you with, with the answer, and uh, unfortunately I don't. I'll, I'll try to make this quick, though. Um, here's the situation with pharmaceutical disposal. First of all, um, a lot of the water contamination from pharmaceuticals comes from excretion, and I hope you don't want me to go into more detail about that, but let's just leave that there. Uh, so that's an issue, I mean, to deal with, you know... Um, 
but to your point of how do you dispose of them, uh, there are competing instructions on different federal websites. So it's difficult for an organization like ours to come out and say, well, you know, follow that agency's instructions, which are counter to that agency's instructions. But the two that are mostly out there, uh, you know, one says to flush them. Uh, we actually recommend not flushing. Uh, the other says to throw them away in the regular trash, unless these are controlled substances or, you know, chemotherapeutic agents or something like that. But um, to try to uh, destroy the pills so that they, you know, can't be um, somehow diverted in the waste stream and uh, send them to the landfill. Um, for people who want to go the extra mile, you can take them to your hazardous waste drop-off. Uh, but I'll just briefly mention, there's a pilot project that we're trying. One of the difficulties is that you, um, to meet requirements around disposing of pharmaceuticals, there has to be a chain of custody, a legal chain of custody. And that's why a lot of pharmacies can't take back pharmaceuticals because we don't have a law enforcement officer standing there 24 seven. Uh, but we're uh, piloting in our Marin Sonoma pharmacies, um, a program where we sell mailer pouches for, I think the, it's about $5 a pouch, and you can put a bunch of bottles and medications in there, expired meds or unused meds, and mail them. And the mail service then constitutes the chain of custody, and they go straight to uh, the waste disposal site. So we think that that could be an answer that gets away from, should I flush, should I throw it away, uh, and we can all dispose of it responsibly. It's a pilot. We hope to expand that much more broadly. But, you know, you've, you've picked on uh, kind of a dicey issue that we're hoping to get some traction on in the future. Thank you. Thank you for your questions, and thank you to the panel. This was really interesting. What I hope is that sort of the takeaway beyond um, the crimes of the baby boomers, which now also include excreting, uh, <laughs> <laughs> is that we really need to develop a comprehensive strategy around green growth. It needs to have, it needs to have a, um, a, a technological component. It needs to have a sort of a life and, and health component. Um, it needs to be uh, fairly holistic and look at the financing. Creative financing is really a big way of, of getting a lot of the improvements that we need. It's not just do we have the products, it's do we have the financing to get the products where they need to be. We need to take kind of a holistic look at this, and I think that California has just enormous opportunities because we have so many problems. And I'm just going to list them. We can use green strategies to, to, to tackle some of these things. I mean, we have a dependence on energy, we have a water issue, we have a global warming issue, we have an expanding population, income inequality. One of the ways that we can deal with in income inequality is through um, various green projects and, and things like energy efficiency. We have an aging population. One in every seven baby boomers lives here. Uh, by starting this year, they're all retiring. And um, by 2025, I believe one in six Californians will be over 65. And what happens with people when they turn 65 is they actually continue getting older for a long period of time. So one of the options, one of the things, <laughs> <laughs> shockingly enough, and uh, one of the things that we can do with them is, is we can, instead of thinking of, of exurban growth, which has always been the pattern, I mean, everybody moved, our grandparents moved out to the exurbs and kind of set up these, these things like Sun City in Arizona. Um, we can create, we can use this as an opportunity to create more efficient communities, far more efficient communities. People who are in later stages in life can use a lot less energy, but things have to be set up that way so that the little old lady is not literally driving that 
big Cadillac to church every week. Um, you know, she could be driving a, a lovely little electric car um, and creating markets. Uh, we also have things like traffic. Traffic is a huge issue. And we have these opportunities to, to pull lots of cars off the road if only we apply ourselves to it. I talked to a woman who works for Bishop Ranch, which is a office park with 33,000 workers, including Chevron. And this lady gets 11,000 of them to leave their cars at home every day. That's an enormous number of cars off the road. That's an enormous number of, of particulate, um, a quantity of particulate that's not in the, in the um, air. It's savings on energy for all of those families. Some of those families go from having two or three cars down to one car. Some of them actually do away with the car. Um, but in any case, it, it improves. And, and the other thing is it improves people's stress and their stress levels and their health, apparently, when they adopt some of these transit strategies. Um, Anyway, we have these, these problems, and, and we have, um, around these problems, we also have opportunities to build political will and, and to change things. Because traffic, I mean, traffic apparently uses, um, we, Angelinos lose 70 hours a year to sitting in traffic. That's like two work weeks. During that time, they must be getting outraged. And we can move them to do something. <laughs> and we need to think of these, we need to think in a more sort of strategic way about this. And on that level, on that note, I would say, you know, please come join us and, and thank you so much for, um, for coming. And a uh, special thanks also to Zocalo for putting this event on and also to Next10 for doing a lot of the foundational research that led to this, this panel and discussion. Thank you.